you didn't want us meant. Um, join me this morning in the book of John, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. We've been looking at these encounters that Jesus has with people after the resurrection. And they are really fascinating encounters because he's, he's interacting with people, his disciples, his friends, his neighbors, and he's meeting them in really uh, human moments. He encounters them in their doubts, their sadness, their disillusionment. And I think these stories are so important because they show us that if Jesus is alive, and we believe he is, that that means he can also meet us in those same moments for us, our doubts, our, our disillusionment, our doubt, you know, our fears, our sadness, whatever. And this morning, uh, we're going to see that Jesus meets us in our failures, that he encounters us and meets us in the places where we have um, really screwed up. And to set that up, I want to tell you this story that I heard a number of years ago that, that's about this guy named Jeff. It took place in 1984. Jeff was a high school student driving to school one morning. And uh, it was bright early, early in the morning. You know how sometimes when the, when the sun is coming up and it's, it's really kind of glaring and intense and you have a hard time seeing. And so he's driving to school. His vision is a little bit obscured. And he hits one of his classmates who was walking to school. So this is this girl named Tammy. And hits her, she flies over his hood, lands on the car behind, you know, lands behind him. He screeches to a halt, gets out, runs to check on her, and he goes white in the face because she's unconscious. And he checks on her, you know, the, the, the paramedics eventually get there. She's alive. They whisk her to the hospital, and they tend to her, and they take care of her, and she, she, she recovers. She's able to kind of make a full recovery, and she's back in school within a number of weeks. And this was this horrible shame, guilt thing that, was, that Jeff was feeling, and so he would just avoid her in the hallways as they finished out their time in high school together. He would, you know, not look in her direction and just so ashamed of, of what he had done, even though it was just this accident. And they graduate from high school, and they part ways, and uh, kind of never hear from each other again, and he uh, carries this around in his story for all these years until 20 years later he gets this email 
from Tammy. As soon as he sees it, you know, you get that kind of pang of panic of like, oh my goodness, what is this going to be? And uh, he opens it up and it reads, uh, Dear Jeff, you, you may have been the first person to hit me with a car, but you were certainly not the last. And he's, you know, confused by this and keeps reading. And she goes on to tell him in this email that she's become a professional stunt woman. And that what she's been known for in Hollywood, that she's made her career, there's, she's been successful specifically out of car hits. And he reads this and it's just like, you know, instantly uh, healed something inside of him. Instantly lifted this thing off of him to know of like, oh my goodness, here was this thing, this failure of mine, this mistake. It was an accident, but I, I screwed up and I never would have thought in a million years that anything good or positive could have come out of that moment. And it was just this relief of knowing, oh my goodness, so, something beautiful came out of something that was really terrible. And I, and I start that way because uh, when you think about how God works, if you're anything like me, you, you think the parts that he works with in my life uh, are certainly not the parts where I have really blown it. That the, where I've really screwed up. I mean, if you look back over your own story and you see the regret, you see the wreckage, you see the, the damaged relationships, the things that you've done that you wish you could take back and you can't, the places that when you think about them, just kind of, you, you have that kind of shame, shiver come over you to like, oh my gosh, I hate that that's back there. And you think certainly God can't work through that. He might can work around that. He might can forgive me because of that, but he can't work through that kind of stuff. Nothing beautiful, nothing good can come out of that. And I think what's so important about this passage is it proves us all wrong. What's so good about this story is that it proves us wrong. And what I want to do is I want to show you two really important things from this story. How Jesus responds to our failures and then what Jesus does with our failures. How he responds to them and then what Jesus does with them. So how does he respond to our failures? <clears throat> well, to, to get into this story, we need to rewind a couple of frames because um, Peter, Peter, what Jesus is doing in the story is he's addressing this thing that happened in Peter's life from about a week and a half ago, a week, we, you know, a week or so before. If you might remember, uh, on the night before Jesus was betrayed, he's, he's having dinner with his closest friends, with his disciples, and he tells them over dinner, y'all are all going to abandon me. And Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, is like, you know, a little offended by this. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? I am the president of the Jesus fan club. I'm, I, I, even if all of these chumps deny you, I won't. I will be there right by your side to the bitter end, Jesus. I'm on your team. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me three times, Peter. Peter had to think, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in it. And uh, as, you, as you know, later that night, Jesus gets arrested. He gets, you know, tortured and beaten up, and then he gets taken through this trial. And all of his disciples kind of scatter. They run, they hide, they, they protect themselves. And Peter, Peter um, remains distant, but, but, but close enough to where he can still kind of see and be a part of somewhat of the action. And so he, he, he's... he's 
uh, kind of going incognito that night, and he's hanging around by this uh, charcoal fire, which is an important detail that will come up here in a second. He's hanging around by this charcoal fire, and there's this uh, young girl that comes up and says, hey, I recognize you. Weren't you that guy that was with this Jesus guy that's created all this commotion? And Peter's like, I don't know what, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who that dude is. And she's like, wait, no, I can tell. You look, you look like one of those guys that was with Jesus. He's like, I don't even know who Jesus is. I don't know what you're talking about. Just, like, leave me alone. She's like, wait, no, I know, what you're, I know who you are. You're one of those Jesus guys. He gets so frustrated I don't even know who this guy is. Stop talking to me. Leave me alone. I don't know. Who, you know, he, he totally just, just tries to be in, so incognito. He denies even knowing Jesus. And in that moment, that's when the rooster starts crowing. And that's the moment for him where he realizes, oh, my gosh, he breaks. The text says that he was grieved. This is the moment where he realizes, okay, I, I have become the thing I thought I would never become. This is the moment of his greatest failure, the greatest shame, the greatest moment of, yeah, he called it. I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think I was capable of this, and here we are. This is who I am. So uh, on the third day, Jesus is uh, raised from the dead, and he comes and he meets with his disciples. It's this glorious reunion, but there's kind of this, like, elephant in the room now where it's like, okay, does Jesus know what Peter did to him? Does, Peter, does Jesus know? And it, and it doesn't get addressed. It doesn't get brought up. And Jesus has these interactions with them. And then the story that we find ourselves in this morning, uh, they're on the beach. The, all the disciples are out there fishing. Ben kind of walked us through this story that was right before this. And, it, and Jesus shows up on the shore. And I didn't include it uh, in the actual passage, but in your bulletin I included it as one of your, uh, your, your reflection quotes. Verse 9 Jesus has set up a little uh, outdoor kitchen grill area, and he cranks up a charcoal fire, and he puts some fish and bread on it for breakfast, which for us sounds like a nasty breakfast, but I guess that was normal fare for them back there, back then. And so they come in from the shore, from, you know, they bring in their haul of fish, and Jesus is right there on the shore, and you would have imagined Peter smells that charcoal. And it triggers maybe this memory and maybe this feeling of like, oh, my goodness, does he know? This feels very familiar. Does he know? And this is the moment where Jesus says, okay, we need, let's address this. We need to talk about this now. And he looks at Simon Peter and he says, uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you, do you still feel confident you love me as bit more than all these dudes? And Peter looks at him and says, yeah, you, you know I love you. I love you. Okay. And then Jesus says again, okay, Simon, do you love me? And Peter's like, uh, maybe he didn't hear me the first time. Yes, yes, I do love you. And then Jesus says a third time, hey, Simon, do you love me? And it says in verse uh, 17, I believe, verse, uh, yeah, verse 17, that Peter was grieved that he asks him this question the third time. Peter grieves. He breaks down crying. You know why? Because this, what, what Jesus is doing, he is intentionally recreating the moment of his biggest failure. He had a charcoal fire going when he denied Jesus three times, and here Jesus is with the charcoal fire. Uh, this, was, this happened 
late at night, early in the morning, sunrise right when the roosters would be crowing, and here Jesus is on the shore, sun is coming up, here's breakfast, same time of day. Jesus asks him those same three questions that, you know, to, make, to kind of replicate these three encounters that he had with that young girl. He, he's intentionally recreating the moment of his biggest failure. Why? Think of it like this. Uh, a number of years ago, our son Reed, who's hanging out right here on the floor, um, uh, was given a big Lego set from his uncle, the, the, uh, the Star Wars Death Star, which is massive. The box alone is, you know, it's huge. 4,000 pieces, it's crazy. You build, you know, like this giant Death Star, which is like, it's you know, bigger than a planet in the, in the movie. It's like this giant sphere. And Reed is incredible with, with that kind of stuff. He, he, you know, Lego sets, big, small. He can do them all by himself. He reads the instructions. He puts them all together. He follows it. You just sit in there, and he's locked in for hours doing the thing. In fact, when he was younger, he used to read Lego instruction manuals before he would go to bed by himself. That was his nighttime reading was just looking through. The, here's the next step, and just, you know, his brain is on another level. It was amazing. And uh, so he's sitting there. He's got about half of the sphere built, and he's getting stuck at one part, and he calls me over for some help. And I sit down. I'm trying to figure out what's going on because there's, there's, something's off. There's something different in the, in the structure that he's built from the picture that's on the instruction booklet. And we're, we're looking at it, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, what went wrong? And, I'm, and it takes me a, a few minutes. I'm looking back through the instructions, and I realize, oh, he had accidentally skipped a step, like step six, he was like on step 400 now or whatever it was. He'd built this thing, and there was something way down at the bottom, at the base of this thing that was missing. And I tried to figure out, how, can, I lift, can I lift it up and insert this piece, which will fix everything else? But if you've ever done stuff with Legos before, you know all the pieces are interconnected and interdependent, and so you can't just add a piece in the middle of it. You've, you've got to break the whole thing apart if you're going to fix it. So in order for us to move forward with the project, we had to move backwards. We had to go back. I had to undo steps 400 through 6 to get to that spot where we could put the piece in and fix it, and then it would kind of correct itself. But here's the point, is that you can't move forward until you go backward. And here's, here's Jesus with Peter, and here's this moment where he's saying, Peter, I know that this has happened. And everything in you wants to bury this failure. Everything in you wants to pretend it's not a part of your story. But if you're going to move forward in this life, we've got to go back and deal with it. We've got to face it. And it is going to cause pain. It's going to cause grief. It's already caused grief in Peter. But if we're, going to, if we're going to heal this part of you, we've got to face it. We can't bury it. And he, so, he, so what he does is he recreates this moment expecting Peter, Peter's going to come in and he's going to be on edge and he's going to be afraid. Okay, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to scold me? Is he going to shame me? Is he going to lecture me for the way that I totally blew it, for the way I totally screwed up? He doesn't get shame. You know what he gets? He gets breakfast. Jesus prepares a meal for him and says, let's go back and face that thing, but let's face it together. And I want you to face it with, with, with me feeding you, with, with my kindness towards you, with my compassion towards you, with my grace towards you. He is applying 
tangible, specific grace to this very particular part of Peter's story. And here's the thing. Jesus will not make sense to you unless you learn to apply his grace to the particulars of your story. If you're anything like me, you have those things back there, those things that you have done that you have hurt people, those things that you've done that you wish you could erase, those things that you've done that you, you regret. The thought of those things uh, just eats you up even when you, when you think about it. And Jesus is like, I don't want you to ignore those things. I want you to face those things. I want you to go back there, but I want you to overlay my grace on top of it when you do. To not bury those failures, but to take them and to plunge them into the ocean of my grace. So that you would know that my kindness, my mercy, my compassion extends to those parts of your story as well. That's what Jesus is doing. That's how he responds to our failures. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't lecture us. He feeds us. He forgives us. He gives grace to us to show us that those failures are a part of our story. And they matter, but they are not the whole of our story. That's how he responds. It's amazing. But it gets even better because then the question comes, okay, what's he going to do with that stuff? All that stuff back there. Is he just going to forgive it? Let's just kind of move on, forgive and forget, pretend it's not back there. No. What does he do with those failures? Well, let's look at the second big idea. If you'll notice, when, when um, Jesus is talking to Peter, he says three different times, okay, if you love me, feed my lambs or tend my sheep, which is a way of saying, I want you to do ministry. Uh, you are now assigned to go take care of people. And you think, okay, here's how this conversation basically just went. Jesus said to Peter, are you a failure? Have you failed me? And Peter's like, yes. And Jesus is like, well, now you're in charge. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Why would, why would, why would Peter's failure warrant him now being put in charge of ministry? That sounds unwise. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, there's a quote at the beginning of your bulletin by this guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. He's a New Testament scholar, pastor, theologian. He said this. I thought this was really fascinating. He said, failure is once again apparently the only human or subjective prerequisite for Jesus' very gracious gift of shepherding his people. In other words, according to Bruner, Failure is the only prerequisite for loving people well. I mean, do you see how backwards that is? I don't know if that's, that's, if that's alarming to you or counterintuitive. I mean, that, that is totally upside down and backwards to think the, the thing that qualifies you for loving people well is to know how disqualified you are. A, a number of years ago when Catherine and I were doing uh, campus ministry with RUF, we would get to the point of the semester where we would recruit and train uh, students to be a part of our, our leadership team, student leadership. And I remember having two conversations with two different guys in one week, and they st both stood out to me because they, they, they kind of happened right next to each other. The first conversation I had with uh, a guy who, who came to me as a junior in college, said, hey, I want to be a part of RUF's leadership team. 
Uh, and here's why. I've, I've been leading a Bible study for the past two years. It's been going great. I, I, I wake up every morning, I read the Bible, I haven't pr- and, I, and I pray, and I haven't missed a morning in like 18 months. I, you know, it, it's been three years since I've cussed. You know, he's like, he's like kind of listing out this resume, trying to think that that would be impressive to me, but basically saying, I'm qualified for ministry. Look at all this awesome stuff I've done. And uh, a few days later, I had a conversation with a guy who looked at me and said, Matt, you need to know, I love RUF. I love Jesus. I don't know if I'm cut out to be a leader, though. I certainly don't feel like I'm a leader. I feel like I'm a mess. I don't really know if I can do ministry in this role. I don't think I can lead in this role. There there are areas of my life where I've really struggled with, and and I don't feel like I'm getting any headway in, and I just feel like I don't... I don't think I would be good at this. The first guy, um, I did not let be a part of our leadership team. And the second guy, I begged to be a part of of our leadership team. Because the first guy thought he was qualified for ministry, and in the the, uh, logic of the kingdom, that disqualifies you. And the second guy thought he was disqualified for ministry, and in the logic of the kingdom, that's what qualifies you. I mean... If you think about how this works, let's just go back to Peter. Let's say he's sitting around that charcoal fire. Up comes the girl. She says, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And instead of experiencing that bitter moment of failure, he says, yeah, I was with Jesus. And Jesus is awesome. Can I tell you about him? Would you like to accept him and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior right here and right now? And he has this moment of you know, strength. And then he leaves there, and he keeps going, and he, he never gives himself permission to fail. He just constantly succeeds, constantly does the right thing, wakes up every morning and reads his Bible, wakes up every morning and prays. He does all the things, serves his community, serves his church, does all the things, no failure, no mistakes. And then he goes out into the world and tries to do ministry in the name of Jesus. How do you think people are going to experience him? People are going to experience him the way a lot of people experience Christians today, where it feels like Christians are moving out in the world and saying, hey, uh, you're the problem, and I've got the answers, and I've got the solutions, and maybe I give you a little advice. If you believe the things that I believed, if you did the things that I did, if you followed kind of the spiritual disciplines, you get a little bit more discipline in your life like I have and do X, Y, Z, maybe one day you'd be as awesome as I am. No one's saying that, but that's what people are smelling. That's what people are picking up on. And that's why some of you hate Christianity. Or this is why some of your friends hate Christianity. Because Christians can move out into this world with with this, this arrogance, this judgmentalism, this sense of you are the problem. And you have the problems, not me. But I have the solution. And I'm right. If you have not tasted failure, what you are offering the world is basically yourself. But if you have gotten in touch with failure and you have experienced his grace, you've overlaid his grace, you've taken those moments of failure and you've plunged it into the ocean of his grace, do you know what you start to offer the world? You start to offer the world Jesus because that's all you have. You don't offer the world Jesus in a self-righteous, icky, religious way. You offer the world Jesus in a winsome way, in a humble way, in a kind way, because that's 
that's what he does with our failures. He uses them to humble us, to, to tenderize us. There's a, um, a, a graduation commencement speech that J.K. Rowling did for Harvard a number of years ago. You can read her whole speech. It's online. It's fascinating. And it's all about failure, which is interesting because she's talking to a bunch of people that are graduating from Harvard, which means these are people that probably haven't experienced a ton of failure. These are extremely elite, successful, driven people. And she says, I want to talk to you about the importance of failure. And I put, I put some of this in, the, in your bulletin at the beginning of your uh, bulletin. But here's what she says. Uh, I'll just read a little excerpt of it. She says, I think it's fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass, and by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. And then she goes on to say, that she has learned that personal happiness lies in knowing that life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. Life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. That's perspective. That's getting in touch with reality. That's, that's becoming sane. But that only happens, according to her, when you start to get in touch with failure, when, when, the, when everything gets stripped away except what is essential. Now, you imagine if everything gets stripped away except for what is essential, you, 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 you get perspective, you get clarity, you get, in, you, you get in touch with reality, and you know that the God of the universe does not shame you for that, to scold you for that. But the Lord applies his grace and his kindness and his tenderness to that part of your life, that creates a whole new disposition inside of you where you are now confident, but you're not arrogant. You're humble, but you're not self-loathing and self-oriented. You, uh, you're, you're honest, but in ways that are wise and appropriate. You, um, you no longer offer yourself as the solution to the world, but you offer the world Jesus. You see how God takes our failures and he uses them to tenderize you, to humble you, to, to, to make your heart swell with more devotion and appreciation for Jesus himself, and to bless other people through your failures? It's crazy. He really does take horrible, terrible, regretful things that we do, and he makes beautiful things out of them. I love how this story ends. Um, Last, last thought, and then I'm done. This conversation with Peter ends in verse 19 with Jesus looking at him and saying, follow me, which is really fascinating because that's the first thing that Jesus told him three years ago when he first met Peter. He sees Peter and says, follow me. Here we are three years later, and he says the same thing, follow me, which means nothing has really changed 
He's looking at Peter and saying, you desperately needed me back then. And so I invited you to follow me. And guess what? Here we are three years later, a lot has happened, and you still desperately need me now. And the invitation is the same. Follow me. The invitation is the same for you and me. Whether or not we're on the beginning of our journey with Jesus or whether we're several years down the road of, of following Jesus, the invitation is the same for all of us. Come, bring your regrets, bring your shame, bring your failures to me and let me absorb them in the ocean of grace that I have available for you. Come and follow me. If it's the first time you've ever done that, if it's the millionth time you've ever done that, the invitation is the same because we are all the same. We are all in desperate need of his kindness and his grace. And what does he do with our failures when we bring them to him? He forgives them and then he uses them. Well, consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Father, as we consider this call to follow Jesus... And all that that means, to come alongside him, to eat from his table, to walk in his ways, to bring him the parts of our story that we hate. I pray that you would give us confidence in your love and your mercy and in your compassion, that we would not run from or be afraid of the dark, shameful places of failure in our own story, but we would have the confidence to go back there to face those things, to be kind to ourselves, to know that you are kind towards us. Would you give us a taste of your mercy, of your tenderness, of your kindness that would heal even our deepest, most shameful failures? And in your mysterious providence, would you somehow even use those? Use those for our good. Use those for the good of our neighbors in such a way that only you can. Thank you that you love us, and thank you that you're for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.